How about that's not mine? <laughs> <laughs> Sounded in distress. <laughs> That's like, like really coming from the throat, eh? <laughs> All right, so I've uh, shared this out a few times. So uh, let's hope somebody's going to be up at uh, this time of the hour over here, three o'clock on the East Coast. I don't know how Art Bell did it. <laughs> I know it did take him years and years and years of uh, hard work, right? But uh, <laughs> hey, our fourth birthday is coming up here pretty quick in uh, in just a sh few short weeks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, hello everyone. I'm Ildi, as you know, and today we have Patricia Avian Lehman on the show. Um, say hello, Patricia. <laughs> <laughs> So we're both in Giza at the moment, where it's actually um, early in the morning. It's about um, 8.46 in the morning, um, and it's going to be another beautiful day. <laughs> um, but, yeah, we're, we're, I think we're all a little bit tired um, from being late at night and us for being a little bit early in the morning. <laughs> so... Um, I wanted to have Patricia on the show because um, Patricia has a wealth of knowledge um, that should be shared with the world. Um, I've been working with Patricia for uh, just over a year now, I think, if that's about right. And, yeah, and it, it's been a pretty amazing experience. But, Patricia, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got here? <laughs> wow. <laughs> that's an question. Um, how I got here? Um, I have been so focused on Egypt since I was a young gal, a young girl. Um, my dad ordered uh, all the. He was a history buff, and uh, he ordered all kinds of magazines like National Geographic, and he had the whole library full of history books. And I always had my nose in this. I would every time the National Geographic came in, I'd race race for it and go through it, page through it, and look for pictures of Egypt. Um, and uh, I had that connection, as I said, quite young, and it lasted throughout my life. Um, I knew I needed to come to Egypt at some point. I knew that the connection was deep, um, and uh, you know, I it just I, I I grew up a very uh, open-minded family. I grew up very intuitive, uh, and I've been studying esoteric sciences my whole life. So I had a really good background, and I also um, have really. Uh, Hard to explain, but I follow my gut. I follow um, I follow my intuition and what it tells me to do. And um, after you know having an amazing life in the USA, I finally got to call to come to Egypt um, and I uh, researched tours. And I uh, because I didn't want to come on a mainstream tour that they just come and they walk around the pyramids and you know that they don't actually you know I wanted to go and experience everything there was to experience with a group of like minds and after a great deal of research I found um, something called a tour called the Star Elders Tour and it featured Abdel Hakim Alian and uh, I uh, the tour was being hosted by Stephen Mailer. So I went out and read, he'd written two books with uh, Hakim, and I read both books, and it was really a 
come to everything that he had said. It resonated with everything that I had already um, come to believe about Egypt. And so this is the tour I signed up for. And I came and Hakeem was already retired, but he was going to lecture on the tour. And I came and was just blown away um, by Egypt, by the experiences that I had. Um, I had amazing, incredible dreams and visions and things. You know, just, it was just a magical journey. Um, and uh, Stephen's passion and Hakeem's wealth of knowledge and wisdom, um, it really just, it was the perfect, the timing was perfect. And from that point on, I knew at one point I would come and live here. And it was uh, actually, they asked me on the tour, what would I think would make the tour better? And I said, well, spending more time at the site. I mean, I have lots of ideas, but could Hakeem come out of retirement and go with us on a tour? And they literally talked to him and a year and a half later, he was he was coming as a speaker, as, as a guide on our tour, well, on a tour, and I had to sign up for it, of course. So that was my second trip to Egypt and it was just incredibly amazing to experience it with this, this, this man just had so much deep indigenous ancient knowledge about Egypt and to go to the sites with him and to see how they reacted to him, uh, the keepers and, and, and the guards from the sites that actually, you know, knew him. He had, you know, worked in the field for 65 years. He had visited and knew all these people and they would come out to greet him with tears in their eyes. There was so much love for this man. Um, and of course, the elders would come out. And um, at any rate, it was it was an incredible experience, left a, an incredible mark on me. And it was literally, oh boy, it was just a year later that I came back again for the third time. And um, you know, it, it was that year that I ended up coming here, getting married, and uh, living here. So I have been living here for almost twelve years. And um, during those twelve years, I have spent you know, the greater portion of my time researching and building on what I knew of Hakeem's foundation of knowledge. Uh, there was so much, I wish I had had more time with him. I'm grateful for the time that I did have with him. We had many incredible conversations. Um, and, and to even describe how that was is, is difficult because this man, um, uh, we would sit, we would sit every morning. I, I, I got a bed and breakfast in the village for a couple of weeks. He asked me to come and stay and I stayed and I would go out with him in the mornings. He would sit across from his, his home at, in front of a coffee shop outside and I would come and sit with him and we would talk. And some mornings he would just talk. We would talk. We would continue our conversations without speaking and then open our mouths and pick up where we left off. And it's hard to explain <laughs> how that works, but this is the way this man was. He had he had such a great ability and so much knowledge. Um, it, again, it's hard to explain. He passed away the year I came to live here. Um, in fact, just before I came, and um, I, I've sort of, you know, it sort of began this work. Um, I started the chemist school. And then uh, I started this work to continue the research and all this foundation that he left, and also to understand and research why he said what he said, because he said so many things, and we didn't have the time to find out why he said it. And so I've made it sort of my, 
my goal in this journey, I wanted to figure out why did he say the Sphinx was Tefnut? Why, you know, why did he say certain things that went against what Egyptologists have been telling us? It's funny that many, you know, Egyptology is now agreeing with much of what he said. Um, it's not funny. It, it, it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. But at any rate, so this is what I've been doing um, the first, the, the last uh, 11 to 12 years. And uh, I'm still excited. I'm still researching and I'm in the process of writing I'm almost, I'm, I'm almost toward the end of the book and I'm writing another one. So. That's pretty cool. Um, you know, uh, when you're talking about the uh, Kemet knowledge, I was watching uh, you know, a few years ago, I guess, um, would have been actually about a year before I met Ildi, I was watching this documentary about the gentleman that you're speaking of. And uh, I liked the documentary so much, I downloaded it. And, um, and, and I just kind of been sitting on my on my hard drive. And, uh, you know, we were supposed to do an interview there uh, a few months ago. And, uh, and then things, uh, you know, kind of changed up. And as I, you know, sometimes they do. And, uh, you know, and, Day before we were supposed to have our talk, I was watching that uh, that very video uh, that you're talking about, and uh, or the gentleman that you're talking about, and I found the video to be so fascinating. And uh, you know, I was I was hoping that uh, you know you'd uh, tell us a little bit more, uh, you know, give us a bit bit more understanding on the uh, the Kemet uh, side of Egypt and the knowledge that uh, that holds that uh, most people are not really even aware of uh, here in the West. No, and you're absolutely right. Um, it's becoming more well known, some of it, but uh, it, it really, it, it's what he he introduced. And, and the funny thing is, is Hakeem grew up on literally living on the Giza Plateau uh, in the village, uh, Nasat Saman, that's at the base of the plateau. He built his home there. Um, in fact, I lived in that home for eight years, and, you know, it, it has a view of the whole plateau we looked I had coffee with the Sphinx every morning or nude as he told us um, and uh, that was his playground that's where he grew up he had an uncle as, as he got older that would send he and um, all the other kids in the village out because he was a uh, uh, antiquities dealer and he would send them out to, to, to look for antiquities and he used to laugh Hakeem that uh, he was so busy you know, looking at what he saw and so fascinated by what was in the structures, the temples, the, the tombs, you know, the things that he saw, that he, he usually came home empty handed. Um, but he did put himself through school. Uh, he, he got degrees in both um, archaeology and Egyptology at university. And he told me that the hardest thing he ever had to do is unlearn everything he learned in school because it didn't address what he saw and experienced through his senses at the sites. You know, if someone tells you something is something, and, and I hear this all the time now, and I smile, you know, you go to the site and you can hear other tour guides saying that this was this and that was done for memorization. And, you, 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 and even my first trip, I would look at some of the things and I'd say, wow, and you look at the immensity, the megalithic blocks, the, the, the incredible craftsmanship, and you say, wow, we can't do some of this today. I'm an artist, and in 2D, I can't replicate 
the perfection of the synchronicity of features on the statues, you know, that's in 3D. I can't replicate that in two dimensions. So if you open your senses and, and just let yourself experience it, you'll see the grandeur um, and, and the incredible uh, ability that these people had um, to create in ways that, you know, and in sync with nature. And I think that's the deepest thing, you know, of his teachings is these people were able to create fantastic feats. I mean, incredible feats of, of creating because they had a deep connection to nature. They, and they, they created with implosive technologies instead of explosive. And there's a difference. Implosive technologies utilize and are in sync with the natural flow of nature. So they're not harming the natural environment. Um, and there's so much more to this. Um, mm -hmm. and, and then you have explosive technologies that use synthetics and, and they actually, it, it, it's so explosive, these technologies, um, that it, it works against nature and we harm the planet. And you, know, and you look at the difference between the two societies and we call this one primitive and yet, look what we've done to our, you know, our Earth right now. Um, and look what we're seeing on the Earth right now, that everybody's locked down and businesses were shut down for so many weeks. And you see all these pictures all over the Internet of, of animals coming out and the skies clearing up and seeing mountains that haven't been seen before. And, you know, it's incredible at the contrast between the two cultures. Um, and it, I, you can't possibly call these people primitive. Uh, I agree, and you know, um, Hakim, he, he had such a massive advantage because back in his days there was no fences, um, you know, he could really just go and explore and see things in their natural, um, you know, in format that they were found in, whilst, you know, now everything has been moved, there's fences, there's things here and there, so you don't get the same sense anymore as you would have back in his days. So he was very, very fortunate. <laughs> well, yeah, you're absolutely right. Those fences didn't come up until about 10 years before I moved to Egypt. So, it's, you know, the, the villagers that we see, they used to have access to the site. Um, Hakim's children were able, they, that was their playground as well. So those fences are, are new, I said, sadly. I, I can see why they had to come up. Um, yeah. and, and we could talk for hours about what's happening now and so many things are changing and, you know, the, the entrances of the plateau are, you know, there's so much happening to restructure things so that we have limited, more limited access to what was here. Um, that's why I always encourage people to come now before all the fences and walls go up. But that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, there's always going to be a way, but yeah, they, they are going to try and, um, I guess, uh, get the traffic to flow a little bit better, you know, through the touristic sites. So, which will be challenging for people that actually just like to hang out at the site, <laughs> like us. It was nice. We got to see things that nobody gets to see when you can wander around and look, you know, and, and um, to go down to all the different levels under the plateau and to see with your own eyes, you know, there's a whole city underneath that plateau. Uh, people come to Egypt and they look up at the pyramids and they don't realize they're standing on a huge subterranean structure. 
that doesn't only include the city of, of, of chambers, but it shafts and tunnels. It's, it's, it's an active, it was once a, an active working energy machine. It, it, it was working in sync with nature and in creating energy flow. Um, so speaking of, speaking of that, Patricia, do you uh, support uh, Christopher Dunn's uh, theory about the uh, Giza power plant? Um, in, in, I do to an extent. Uh, his work is incredible, and I, I admire everything that he's done. Um, my feeling is um, it was working. Um, it, I don't think it was working to It wasn't a power plant, in my opinion, not working to create power. I think if they had the power to create it, you know, I don't, I don't think they needed a big power plant. I think it was... I think it's it's a different way of understanding. It was creating powerful fields of energy. In other words, it was it was harnessing earth currents and stellar currents. It's it's the you know the geomagnetic currents. It, it was it was harnessing all of these currents to create a field of energy that would enhance body, mind, and spirit as well as agricultural processes. And I think they understood. They had the tools, the obelisks, the and the different tools to actually extend these fields of energy for wide spaces. I think they had, a part of my research is agricultural technologies. And I've been all over the world and I've seen them in Peru and other places. They, the ancients were so deeply connected to nature that they understood how to use paramagnetic soils, how to use the flow of water, both uh, both uh, in the rivers and the subterranean flows, and they understood how to harness these things to enhance everything. You know, Egypt is is the only culture historically that that was it was just it fed millions of people and it survived thousands of years, and it's because they understood how to support their civilization. Um, and I think if we looked again at these things today. Just their, the ancient agricultural technologies. They didn't need. They didn't need all the chemicals and the synthetics that we use today. That are actually destroying our bodies. They knew how to harness the currents, and not just Egypt. I mean, what I saw in Peru was unbelievable, and I've seen it in other in other areas uh, where they were emulating the ancient cultures. Um, they knew how to do it just through minerals and flow. Very interesting. Go ahead, Ildi, sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, uh, I agree with it. And, um, you know, a lot of this area still has water underneath it, even though it doesn't look like it because it's desert and has been desert for a long time. But, um, you know, in 2015, they were pumping out water from underneath the Sphinx. And that water continues to collate because if you go near the Sphinx, even though, you know, it's in the desert, there's there's still vegetation that grows. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> you can't kill it off. But, when, you know, when we had the earthquake, uh, well, it wasn't here, it was in Greece, but um, we could feel it. Uh, well, I felt it here in, in our house and my husband felt it. And, you know, I said to Patricia, you know, I'm not really shocked because I know there's still a lot of water underneath us. So that would carry me you know, um, the earthquake wave or whatever to us, despite the fact that it's so far away. So, yeah, we know that there's uh, a lot of water underneath the uh, uh, 
uh, underneath the desert, for that matter, there's uh, one of the mm -hmm. world's biggest uh, freshwater reservoirs is uh, underneath there. And uh, what was his name? Uh, Muammar Gaddafi uh, spent uh, something like one and a half billion dollars, two billion dollars pumping uh, a lot of that water out and uh, providing it to uh, to his people. So, uh, you know, in fact, yeah, there's tons, lots of water, more water well, than uh, there is on the surface, I think. Well, yeah, you both, you're absolutely correct. And we've seen this come up at Doug. Um, they actually had to um, pump water out of the plateau, out of the underground areas when they were excavating. Um, we saw that when I was living at the house and I was basically on the plateau all the time, um, the house at the foot of the plateau. Uh, what what what's really exciting when you think about it is when you understand that all the structures, the Giza Plateau for one, many channels underneath the Giza Plateau, and they're they're orchestrated in, in, in such a way that they go in in an energetic pattern, like a zigzag or energetic pattern, um, and that creates an ionic you know an ionic atmosphere. Uh, this is really this is a charged field of energy. And when you look under this, the structures, under the temples, um, under Abu Sir, ancient, ancient temple below the temple that, you, you know, you're looking at if you look at it historically. But they had channels of water going underneath the floor, Saqqara, channels of water. Every single one of the temple. Now, under Saqqara, it was channels of water within um, uh, like a calcite that was covered by a limestone. So you can see this is energy. This isn't about running off, runoff of, of rainwater. This was about energy flow underneath the structure. Um, I, I, you know, they, every temple that we go to has channels of water underneath it, whether they were natural or they're created. And then you think about this, this is creating a supercharged atmosphere. Then think about that the river floods once a year. So you get this flood, and this is symbolically, they use this symbolically to represent the resurrection of Osiris. And that's a long story, but when you consider that flood comes down, and they're all waiting for it, that the great Haleakal rising of Sirius with the sun tells them, this is Isis, right, with the sun. It's almost like the alchemical marriage, in a way, of the sun, which is every matter, right? with Isis. So this is an alchemical marriage that gives birth to this flood of water, which connects all of the gnomes of Egypt, which are the body parts, the separated body parts of, of Osiris. And so this resurrection, this surge of water is awakening each one of these structures as it comes by. So the flooding comes. Can you imagine the Giza Plateau and how it would have been charged and singing and surging as this water flowed through all these underground channels? It would have been incredible. Um, just it, It's just enormously incredible how they utilize this event and all the stages and the seasons afterwards, again, to, to create an, an, an advance and uh, support this incredible uh, civilization. And Patricia and I talked about this last year when we were in, in Luxor uh, at a research mission. So, you know, it, it just sort of came to me that a lot of these temples are right next to the Nile and it just made no sense that they went through so much time and effort to build temples, you know, if they were just going to be flooded, as in, you know, the interior would be flooded. So, you know, it made no sense to me because there was paint and everything on the walls. Why would you paint stuff if it's just 
going to get flooded. Clearly, they were channeling that water somewhere else. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Very advanced structurally. And again, well, kinda, specific, you know, sorry, go ahead. No, sorry, go ahead, Patricia. I was just going to say uh, we see water underneath uh, all the pyramids. Uh, around the world. Uh, we can look at the Bosnian pyramid and uh, there's water channels underneath and the cool thing about the Bosnian pyramids is that uh, you know it has healing properties like you were saying about uh, the ionized energy. You go underneath the pyramids uh, you know you somehow it uh, helps heal you. Do you think that uh, the same method or the same uh, ideas uh, are taking place with the uh, Egyptian pyramids? Oh, absolutely. Um, and there's so many connections cross-culturally. And, and one of the things I teach about, um, and, and in my research of Tefnut, Tefnut, Hakim said, the Sphinx was Tefnut. Tefnut is a, a, a lioness, a netter. And um, we didn't even mention that a lot of people believe that the Egyptian gods and goddesses, this pantheon of gods and goddesses, that they were worshipped like pagan gods. Uh, and the truth of the matter is they were called netters um, and based on the consonants NTR, the, the hieroglyphs for the, that we you know, translate as the consonants NTR, the Romans um, sp sp spoke this uh, through tone as nature. And this is where we get our word nature. They are mm -hmm. natures, forces of nature. And so, you know, and I can't even explain how important this is because co combined collectively these forces of nature, this is what they're harnessing. So Tefnut is the force of nature that was the spit. Tef is the spit of Nut, which is your sky. So it's the spit of the sky, but her twin is Shu. And Shu is the one who in the composition is holding up the sky. But when you see, you see this depicted everywhere, he's stand, standing on Geb, which is the earth, Jeb or Geb, it's pronounced, and holding up Nut, but with him, but you don't see her because there's the seen and unseen forces of nature. Tefnut is the unseen force of nature. Together they make up electromagnetism. This is atmosphere, right? So it's, it can be so incredibly, I mean, there's so much science, um, and I actually call it alchemy because they didn't divide when they when they understood the world, they didn't see it in in, in the, the divisions that we do. Is this is biology and this is physics and this is astronomy? They understood it was all connected. It was all working in sync as a connected alchemical um, process. So that's why these netters, when you see the mythologies and you understand how they move and 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 grow and migrate even through cycles, they're actually telling us how the world works. They're giving us um, an understanding of how we perceive reality. So, it, you know, and then, you know, you take that further. We were talking about Tefnut. I just wanted to explain that. So as Tefnut, the spit of Nut, she was the spit of this electromagnetic, in my opinion, energy. I looked at what she represents. She is a lion, right? And I stared at her. And why would, why would Tefnut be on the Giza Plateau in alignment, what, with the pyramids the pyramidians right pyramidian the prime meridian used to run through the Giza plateau right it moved to paris which paris gets the word from per isis the place of isis and then it moves to greenwich where it is today but where it was once long ago was through 
the Giza Plateau. And I thought to myself, well, that's a very important line, vertical, um, if you look at the earth in a certain way. And I thought, well, what if there's a horizontal line, right? And I saw on, on, on you know, when I'm on the internet, I'm always researching, I saw a meme and it said, never sleep where cats sleep. Well, I grew up with cats all over me. Nobody <laughs> can talk to you about cats. But <laughs> I have always had cats and dogs. I love animals, but cats have always slept on top of me, uh, you know, with me. I always have them. I thought, wow, William, I got to check this out. So I researched it. And it's true. I found medical websites that said don't sleep or cats sleep because they, they love the radiation that comes out of the earth, you know, places where there's geopathic stress. And they went on to describe places where there's subterranean running water and certain conditions. And I, they, what they described basically was the Giza Plateau. And I thought, okay, we have a reclining lion. So what are we talking about here? A place of very strong geopathic stress of, of uh, electromagnetic energy. Well, I thought to myself, you know, she's in alignment. Lion, right? She's a lion. Well, the lion itself. I, mean, I don't want to, you know, spend all our time talking about this. But there's a glyph of the lion in the front paws, and the head of the lion represents L, right? L, lion, right? And it looks like a lion. She's in alignment. And so I thought to myself, maybe there was a more important horizontal line that ran around the earth, and I had never heard. I was never taught in in grade school that there was a magnetic equator. I had only, you know, we'd only been taught that there was a geographic equator. I'd studied that, I knew that. But something, and this was many years back, something told me that there, you know, maybe there was a magnetic equator that separated the two hemispheres of the Earth. And so I looked it up and yes, of course, there's a magnetic equator, but it changes over many years. And I found uh, the work of someone who said that there was once an ancient magnetic equator when the earth was in balance and before it tilted. And that magnetic equator would have run right through, according to this this person and there's several other that I others that I found, would have run right through the Giza Plateau. And it would have not only run through that, it would have run through Petra and uh, Mahanjadero and Cambodia through uh, Anchor Wat would have run through Easter Island. It would have run through. It's naming some of the most important major sites in the world. And then I started to, and I actually traveled to many of these sites because I had to see if there's a connection. And my geologist, uh, uh, Susan Moore, that works with me, she came as well. And we looked at the sites, and they were all harnessing water. They all had certain elements that were identical. So you, you, you look at this and so many more things. And then, you know, the stories and the mythologies and how this line actually migrated south to where it is today in Ethiopia. And the mythologies actually totally support this. They tell the story, how it migrates. When Egypt becomes desolate, it at one time was lush and beautiful and, and, and everything you can imagine as just being an incredibly healthy civilization. And then suddenly it's desert like it is today. Um, maybe not so subtly, but this is the story that the mythology speaks about it. Egypt becomes dry and desolate, but then you can raise the jet again, right? The spine of the earth. They, they celebrated this annually, raise the spine of the earth and restore the earth to balance. Tefnu returns, she leaves Egypt, goes south to Nubia, Ethiopia. And this is where 
the ancient, or not the, the modern magnetic equator is, but it's it's now all, all, all over the place and it's moving constantly and it's chaotic because that's the state that we're in today. But then Tefnu does come back and she restores the largeness to Egypt. But we were talking about the other sites and when I bring that up, I speak to this understanding. I've spoken to um, the indigenous in Australia uh, someone who was a knowledge holder there of, of the local wisdom and she said that they speak about the ancients and the ancient Egyptians even traveling to Australia by following this ancient magnetic equator and it falls right along the same line and there's so much more to that story as well and these are the things I'm writing about there's just so much knowledge out there and it's just connecting the dots and it isn't just Egypt it is cross-culturally that's pretty cool, Patricia. I like that uh, you mentioned a few minutes ago about um, the earth being upright. Um, I did a show there uh, last year or about a year and a half ago, and it was called uh, Time Before the Earth Knew Its Moon. And uh, I hypothesized that, uh, that the moon was uh, brought into orbit and uh, that the earth was uh, put into the tilt that it in today. Um, you know, the earth mostly, you know, I see it as a top. Right, so when you spin a top, it's gonna you know keep that center of gravity, and it's gonna spin uh, perfectly. And if you nudge it, then you know it kind of shows the wobble uh, mm -hmm. that uh, you know the processional cycle that we're in today, that uh, 26,000 year cycle. So I find that you know pretty cool that uh, that you mentioned that uh, you know when our Earth was upright. I call it the TikTok pattern, um, and it, it has to do with the cycles. And this is something else that's cross-cultural. The indigenous will tell you this everywhere in the world, that the, we, we consciousness itself um, evolves and devolves in cycles. Um, and we, in this current time, have devolved to the lowest point. Uh, we are at rock bottom, but then we evolve again. And it does have to do with the tilt of the earth and how it, it, it etches out this circle in the sky of what the Egyptians called the never setting stars or the um, circumpolar stars. And these, this, it was like the mouth where everything is born, formed. You know, every, in ancient Egypt, they talk about form and formless. And I believe from all of my research here and what I've seen at all the temples and all my studies, I see that they look at these seasons of, of a year um, uh, emulating the seasons of the great year. There's, there's more to this. It's even the hours of the day. And they, they, they speak to patterns and they're always the same fractal patterns. And so what we see in a year, we see in a great year. So we fall into we fall into winter, the lowest cycle, and we, we spring into summer. And they actually, some of the structure, like at Dendera, the, the, the temple itself embodies that principle. You know, the spiral, you spiral up on one side as you're walking up the steps, and the other side, you, you, you literally fall right back down to the night side of the temple. So it's day and night cycles. And I see these four seasons, they're expressed in a great year as well. So you, you see the season, we fall into form in the age of Taurus, right? And that's where we are now. We've just fallen into the worst, most densest perception of who we are. We think we are our bodies. And I believe we move into other seasons, I'm not gonna explain it all now, but where we actually rise into a perception that we are connected, a unity consciousness, as opposed to a, a separation consciousness. One second, Patricia, come on. <laughs> <laughs> I, I 
I'm writing a book about just that subject and how it works because it is unbelievable and it is spoken. They, this is said, talked about on the walls of the temples. Uh, Dendera, as you know, Gildi is my favorite. Um, and Hakim taught us when you walk into, you know, you, you go through that first gate when you're entering the temple of Dendera, which is the temple of Hattor, and you look up, you'll see the, the underbelly of a winged scarab. And this is the only place in Egypt that you'll see this. And he said this means that you're looking at, you're, you're entering a place that holds all the secrets to um, the mysteries of the universe, universal flow. And, you know, I, I have been studying this temple, you know, for so many years now, every aspect of it. Um, and it literally does, it, it's incredible. Um, and all through the temple, it's, you know, the first, when you walk into the first hexagonal hall, you look up and what you see is an incredible story. Um, and then, you know, as you walk through the temple, every part of this temple, it, it tells us the secrets to the mysteries of how this works. Um, and uh, it's just incredible. And um, we, we, we spent uh, two days there last year in November. And I mean, you, we just went, you know, on a, for research purposes. So we were there for hours and hours and hours. Now, having that time, I actually took photos of the entire ceiling, including, you know, real close-ups. And what you see on there is not something that you're going to see anywhere else, I don't think, in Egypt. It's just, uh, it, it's truly amazing. Um, yeah. <laughs> just the symbolic movement. Yeah, bits and pieces you'll see in other areas, but in all its splendor, ah, uh -huh, Absolutely incredible, and I can go in there and speak for hours. And we usually only have a couple hours, and you have to go through it quickly. And you know, and this is another reason I'm writing so that people know the basics, so I can go deeper when uh, they actually come. Because uh, the story that what's told there about how we perceive reality is just incredible, and I think this is really where people need to start. Uh, we we tend to look at history and our heritage. And we think that we, we think that the ancients thought and perceived the world the way we do. And if they didn't, then we are so far off. You know, we're trying to decipher. You know, and, and this is why we say that. You know, we might say that the pyramid was a power plant because we perceive a need for power when they mm -hmm. might not. You know, we have to start with perception. How we are experiencing reality first. We need to understand that before we can possibly understand how they could do what they were capable of doing. They did it because they could. They moved, you know, <laughs> you know, 200 ton blocks and bigger and larger, 1,200 ton, because they could, because it, they could do it. You know, and, and we look at it as, wow, we need how many cranes? And then you have to balance it. And, you know, why aren't we finding machines? Because they knew how to harness the that forces of nature uh, in ways that we've forgotten how. And I do believe we are learning. Um, Ildi knows I just took a course with Dr. Ibrahim Karim. Um, and uh, I've been wanting to take this course for years. And he moved to Canada. And they weren't offering it very often. And it was always a conflict. So in February, I finally had the opportunity. And I, you know, I'm just blown away because the science actually totally 
agrees with everything that I've, I've studied and researched with what the ancients knew. He, he's written a fantastic book. Uh, I recommend everybody get it, Dr. Ibrahim Kareem. But he speaks about the netters and how, you know, in a different way. He's given me new, more t new, new and more tools for understanding how they did what they did. Um, so just incredible. And it, it's just another way of perceiving reality and understanding it. Now, and, Patricia... Uh, Sorry, go ahead, Ildi. Uh, I was just going to say, you know, um, you know, this topic is very hard to explain. And Patricia did the, you know, the course. Um, I only went to, um, I guess, like a, a video viewing, um, which explained some of the concepts. And, you know, once you sit there and listen to it, so much makes sense, like why the pyramids were built the way they were built, as in, you know, it's not... It has, um, you know, that bend in the sides and things like that. So it's it's really interesting but very complicated stuff. Um, I hope to do it, you know, sometime. Not in the near future, I don't think. But, you know, sometime soon when I can. So, <laughs> well, you'll be back to Egypt, so you'll have the opportunity, I'm sure. I'm going to take the course again in the next course. Um, it's it's just you know these things are so incredible for understanding. His work is important for what's happening with us now. Even with Wi-Fi, with 5G coming into the world, he has tools for not you know we don't have to not have 5G. He has tools that can help us deal with the negative effects of 5G. Um, and, and these things are important for us to know as individuals. There are things we can do to live in this world until we get it right and we start working in sync with nature. Just try and work in some sort of balance. <laughs> <laughs> that would be nice. Patricia, you had mentioned uh, Dan Dara and uh, a lot of people out here in the West uh, because, uh, you know, they've been exposed to ancient aliens and uh, kind of what have you. Uh, you know, the first thing that uh, comes to people's minds about Dandera is that Dandera bulb. Um, could you um, explain that to us a little bit, maybe uh, clear up some uh, misconceptions that uh, people may have over here? Because automatically, like you were saying just a few minutes ago, is that, you know, we, uh, you know, try to incorporate our own perception into the ancients. Uh, you know, for example, electricity, when we think about energy, we think about electricity and say, okay, well, we'll create electricity to use TVs and computers and kind of what have you. So the ancients must have done the same thing, right? Uh, you know, I think that's kind of a little bit far from the truth. Uh, so maybe you can uh, clear up uh, that little bit of uh, misconception for us. <laughs> yes, thank you. Um, you know, I, I've had, I, I have a couple of pages on uh on Facebook and Horus Rising. I started a whole new um, field called Horus Rising and, and website. So I, I got that and Chem at School going. And uh, people bring that up a lot on, on these pages. And, uh, I, you know, my feeling is I, I admire all the work they've done and they're taking, you know, we, we can make a process out of anything that we look at if we understand how it works. But the Dendera bulbs, we're looking at lotus as bulbs. What you're looking at, and if you understand, you know, in the one picture when you have the, um, it looks like, uh, um, you know, like a, an ape that has, he has a frog face, right? And 
you know, frogs have to do with with pregnancy potential. Um, this 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 type of thing, and he is holding up the two knives. And underneath the bulb, you see there's a pregnant woman, and you see there's the jed, right, the, the spine, the backbone. And what you're looking at is is this bulb of this lotus. It's just like it's giving birth to form. There's that that image of the serpent. The serpent is the sine wave. It's it's the cosmic serpent, and there is so much to this understanding of the movement of the serpent, this waveform that has to do with our perception of life. See, life emerges from the primordial waters of no thing, nothing, and it's called none, noon, right? None. It's nothing. It's silent. It has no color, no tone, no movement, nothing. And then suddenly, based on the the um, the innate polarity of this nothing, this this field of consciousness, all that is, it, it's innately, it, it's dual, it's it's polar, and so suddenly that innate duality starts starts the movement. This is this is thought, right? And so the movement begins, and that creates the first sound, which is thunder, and that creates the first lightning, which is the sine wave, which is the basis of life itself. It's all waveform. And so understanding that, and, and this is a different uh, image that you're showing right now of the same thing, but the, the understanding that this is life itself and it's dual, he's holding the two knives. The, the ancient creation story says that life begins, creation begins in the sea of two knives, out of the lotus, right? So I, I believe what we're looking at is the birth of form, the first breath which is the, the, the sine wave of life. And it, the breath goes out and then it comes back in again. And, you know, you, you, science tells us we have a big bang, but they miss the other aspect of the inhalation. There's an exhalation, bang, life, right? Life mm -hmm. is created, but then there's an inhalation back to source. These are the four seasons, exhalation, inhalation. It's all speaking to moving between from perceptions of reality into movement and form and separation. Creation is separation from source. Inhalation takes you back to source. This is the rising and falling of consciousness. And that is what everything is based on. And um, Omar, important yep. thing to note, um, the, they usually show one image, um, you know, of these Denzera light bulbs, but in the crypt, directly on the opposite wall, there's uh, another one, but it's a little bit different. And also throughout the temple, um, high up near the ceilings, there's also more of them. So it's not just in one place. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and I'll point this out to people and, you know, they're surprised because they thought it was something special and unique that's only in one place, but there's actually representation of that, um, you know, in a different yeah. I thought it was just on uh, on just that one wall as well. I didn't know that uh, it was all over. Yeah, many different places. Um, uh, and remember, the, the other thing to remember, people say, they, first of all, why did they need light bulbs? Um, Hakeem used to speak that, that one time we had 360 senses, and these senses were the netters. So if you can think of a time when we had, um, he, he would have called it a higher consciousness, uh, a higher perception of our reality. Um, 
Think of the possibility that they could see in dark places without eyes. In other words, you know how we have intuition. Well, you know, think of more sensibility, full sensibility. Um, they have gods, you know, like the god Heka. And you see an image of Heka, and he's crossing two serpents. And what do you do when you cross two, two fields of energy? You create a portal, right? He felt the currents, and he knew how to harness them to create the force fields. And this is what the ancients, I believe, and what Hakim said, they knew how to do this. They felt them. They could discern them. We've forgotten. We don't feel the energy. And some people can. You, you talk to many people that are sensitive to energy. Some people walk into a temple and say, wow, they get knocked over. That is one, just a small part of what I believe they were capable of doing. And secondly, okay, secondly, why would they have used explosive technologies? Why would that have been the only explosive technology they would have used? They, I don't believe they needed them. And I believe they had tools, you know, we don't see, you know, in the crypt, we don't see where they had fires, we don't see the, the residue on the, on the walls or ceiling. I believe they actually could see without eyes. They had a, a higher sight than we did. Now, yeah, not necessarily so. in these crypts, but what I, you know, in, in many areas, in many subterranean locations, and you know, you know, in different time periods, different different abilities. But you know what I'm saying? I I I just don't know that this would have been about technology. Yeah, I don't think uh, myself that it was about technology, and I like. Um you know, I like your thought on this. Uh, personally, I think what they did was, um, you know, they, they just manifested um, an idea um, and a belief of uh, there being an illumination uh, in within an area that may be dark. So, you know, if you imagine in your mind that uh, there's light in this room, then, you know, I think they were powerful enough back in those days that they were able to manifest that into reality so that they would make light out of uh, darkness. Uh, so, you know, like out of nothing, essentially. And I think that's, uh, you know, like you were saying, their higher consciousness was, um, you know, able to do that. Uh, you know, they were able to manipulate uh, frequency, vibration, and, uh, you know, and, and, be able to identify with each frequency and uh, and vibration and you know almost to manipulate it themselves into doing what they wanted to do you know or what they want it for them to do right you know what i mean right and, and, yeah, you, i know that <laughs> you're absolutely right and and dr kareem would explain it that you know and i bring his name up because his work is so fantastic he would explain it as you know, even when we started to lose that sensibility, we developed tools for measuring those qualities. And, and, and it's creating fields of energy that are beneficial for the body. So there's, there's fields of energy. There's a grid line on the earth right now of, 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 of energy patterns that are very destructive for our body if we're in them for long periods of time. Uh, they're called Hartman and Curry lines. You can look that up. You know, and, and we don't feel them, we don't know them, we're oblivious to them. If you have one running right over your bed, yikes, you're not going to sleep very well. You, and, and you could develop diseases like cancer. But if you can feel it, you're not going to put your bed there. So at one time, what I would say is they felt it. They knew. We put the bed here. Or we do things to change the quality of the atmosphere so it doesn't harm us. Well, today, 
you know, gradually they use tools. So some of the things that we see them, the staffs that they carry in the ankh, maybe these were tools for measuring these these different qualities of energy. Color is a quality, tone is a quality, angle. And as Ildi was saying, the shape of the pyramid, or a pyramid shape or a dome, can, if you're underneath it, can be negative unless you change the shape just a bit. And mm -hmm. if you notice, architects know this, you have to change the shape. And like you know, Ildi was saying, the Great Pyramid has eight sides, and people will scratch their head and say, why? Well, it, it changes the quality of the energy that's coming down from the top. They knew this, right? So we have to develop tools. We forgot how to use the tools. He's bringing that science back. It could also be that uh, the kitty cat uh, was identifying uh, these places for them, right? Uh, you know, cat would give them a warning. Don't put your bed here. Well, I think exactly, exactly. <laughs> they put those, those things there for us because at that state of consciousness, they knew we were going to lose the capability. So they left the symbolism. They left tools. They couldn't leave words. We wouldn't understand words, right? We, because words can be taken many different ways. But they left symbols. They left things that were like the lion itself. You know, they understood every aspect of the lion, the lion's body. When you see the statues of the lions and you put your hands on them, the really ancient ones, you can feel every rib. You can feel the spine as you take your finger down. You can feel every little indentation in the spine. They, they understood every aspect. So when they use it as a symbol, you can really, you can almost totally understand what they were trying to portray if you study the particular um, animal or shape or whatever it is. The shape itself is giving us a quality of energy, if we remember. And they yeah. knew at some point we'd wake up. <laughs> wow. Well, Egypt. <laughs> Egypt is uh, such a complex, uh, you know, topic. It's uh, it's deep. I love it. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, it's uh, it's one of my loves, but uh, apparently not as much as your guys' is because. Uh, <laughs> You left your countries and just moved to Egypt. There's no better place to be. So, you know, uh, I asked Ildi this um, last year, I believe uh, she was doing the uh, webinar Queens of Egypt. And, um, you know, and, and she explained it really good. So I'll ask you the same thing. Um, it's in one of the temples where, uh, you know, again, this comes off of ancient aliens where they're saying that uh, there are helicopters and tanks, um, you know, in this uh, one glyph. Uh, you know, Ildi explained to me, you know, brought me to my senses and said, uh, no, 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 those were, uh, you know, full glyphs, but, uh, you know, over course of time, they've just eroded away and that's kind of just how it looks. And I was like, oh, you know, that really does make sense. <laughs> you know, so I was humbled by that. So, uh, you know, I'd like to uh, hear your thoughts on that. Uh, are you like in line with uh, Ildi on this one or? Absolutely. Um, and, and it's funny. And I show people this when you walk into the temple. Um, a lot of it, what, what you can call it, it's something called like pompous set. I don't pronounce that right, probably. That's, that's the term. And basically, what you see, and you see it all over Egypt is writings on top of writings. So she's right, it erodes. And then, you know, somebody, you know, the next cycle begins, the next kingship, right? The next rulership comes mm -hmm. in. 
and the priests come in and change everything. Sometimes they just wipe it down. And, you know, in the beginning, they were very crafty at it. They really worked hard at, at doing wonderful work. But then as time wore on, they were <laughs> less skilled. And this is where you see the degradation, the devolution, right? We see the devolution of craftsmanship. We know the best craftsmanship almost always is more ancient. But what you see is that, you know, they, they just come in and do that. And what you, and when you understand the patterning of the temples and how they did the writings, if they're doing them, you know, on several different lintels, then you can look for that pattern. And what we see is that's what's missing. So you can't, you know, there's so many things that don't work. And yes, they can go in and figure out what the original shapes that would have matched the other patterns. And somehow that did erode and then they try and change, you know, the, the letters and the shapes. So now it, it's beautiful, and I think somebody possibly in more modern times had some fun with it at some point, and there's no way to know that for sure. It does look like it's a submarine and a helicopter, and a, you know, we, we all love to look at it, um, but highly doubtful. Um, and then within that temple, I think we have an ongoing joke here, those of us that you know, travel a lot here and have been to so many different sites and museums, um, you know, Ramses II was one that came, <laughs> they like to say he did it, but it, again, it's the priests that did it. The priests understood that there's a change in cycle. So they came in and instead of wiping out what was there before, they just stamp it so deep, you know, that you, <laughs> and, you and then you see both writings. So it, in the temple there, the Seti One temple, you can actually see this in several places. So clearly that the more ancient Seti One scripts are so beautiful and then you see this big stamp of the Ramses the second his son comes in and does this well his son didn't do it the priest did it and they're saying and what is he's the age of of Aries right he's coming in Aries that the phrase for Aries is I am he's coming in and stamping his name on everything wrote his name on you know every statue I am right you even see it on on statues that look feminine I've been told so you know everything says Ramses well is it a statue of Ramses no they're coming in saying new cycle this is the age of the ram you know the stubborn I am um, and that's how they did things underneath Karnak you see Ram Road you see the beautiful Ram Sphinxes well underneath Karnak there was a temple dedicated to the bull to Taurus right they just had to change everything because they understood when we move through an age, when we move through that procession of the equinoxes, through the circumpolar stars, everything changes. Perception of reality changes. The ancients knew this, and it's cross-cultural worldwide, and it's only today. Yes, Christianity is the two fish of Pisces, but we've lost the understanding of what that means. It changes mm -hmm. everything, and now we're moving into the age of Aquarius and it changes everything. And I think we're going through that great shift right now. Um, this, is, this is truly quite interesting because Aquarius is all about social and public and we've been told we're not even allowed to, to, to touch each other and be next to each other. Um, this is incredible for, you know, this, this, as we precess into this powerful new, new moment in time. Yeah, that's pretty far out. Uh, <laughs> can't touch nobody. <laughs> Social distance. You know, I, that, that does sound pretty uh, uh, it's nefarious, the, the doesn't highest, it? It's the highest or lowest point of separation consciousness. Mm -hmm. We're scared of each other. 
You know, people walk out their doors with their masks on and they don't want, if somebody gets too close, they get, I mean, <laughs> I was out just the other day and someone yelled at my nephew here, you know, for, for being too close. And he was the one that was out of line. And I thought, wow, you know, we, we, never, we never did this before. Um, and that, that's, you know, that can be terrifying. But if you look at it realistically is, you know, a wake up call. You know, can we allow this to happen to us? Is this time to be in a unified state of consciousness? Um, wow, you know, I'm not going to get into that discussion now, but <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a chapter. That's like a day for uh, a whole day show. It is. Yeah, because uh, there's uh, there's definitely something nefarious going on. There's somebody who understands uh, this uh, energy shift, and yeah. uh, they're trying very, very, very hard. Uh, to uh, keep us uh, from shifting and uh, going or, into this next phase. Or they're trying very, very hard to wake us up. How much will we accept before we say no more? The news has become so ridiculously fake. It's so non-objective. It's in your face. You have to be trying really hard. And, and this is where they talk about the, the what is it, social dis or dissonance or something. You have to be trying cognitive dissonance trying so hard to keep that that frame of mind in place that everything you're being told is the truth because you're it, they're slamming it in our faces it's not true so is this the great wake-up call are we being challenged to literally you know take the sleep out of our eyes and wake up nothing is what we're being told it is i don't know what it is i'm not going to stand up there and, and say i know what's going on but i do know i'm not being told the truth themselves if you, you think about the, the people that we see all flashed all over the news and the internet if you watch them and if you've listened to them they are contradicting themselves constantly <laughs> one minute they're saying this one the next minute they're saying that they you know, face masks yes face masks no but you know and that's just silly but a silly issue but there's many big issues and they're contradicting themselves isn't that telling us wow folks it's not real you know yeah, is it to go within and discern for ourselves. And, so and sorry, importantly, uh, you know, um, it, it's not just the news and whatever, it's pretty much everybody because if you yeah. watch, you know, any theories on what's going on, maybe there's some sort of grain of truth in it, but a lot of it is, you know, just out there theory. I'm sorry, but nobody is really telling us the full truth of anything you just sort of have to guess or sense it yourself you're right Heldy. there is i you know i'm not getting on anybody's bandwagon here because i i honestly think we we're, we need to do the research ourselves we need to get out there we need to figure it out for ourselves um and be discerning we have to go to our guts we've been living in this world by trusting our analytical our minds and I think this is the challenge to go into our hearts. I mean, the whole Sekhmet thing, I always say Sekhmet is telling us to open up our chest and allow our hearts to show and to trust our hearts because our hearts will tell us what's real and what's not. Um, and, and not rely so much on our minds that can get us into trouble every time. You know, this whole yeah. COVID, whole COVID <laughs> thing, uh, the thing that comes to mind is, uh, you know, there's something rotten in Denmark. Um, you know, just uh, that saying just immediately came to my mind. 
Like, and, uh, when uh, this whole, I, whole this COVID thing broke out, I was like, oh man, there's something stinky in Denmark. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My biggest fear is the loss of human rights. Um, it, it's it's wow. This is the moment where we're being asked to choose, and I think wow. It, again, we could talk about this for hours and hours, but so before we so before we close this off um patricia and uh ildi let's talk about uh really quickly as to how the um the tours and uh stuff mm -hmm. like that is going to happen in egypt uh post covid uh, once they open everything up and people are coming back um what do you guys um you know if you're involved in giving tours uh you know obviously you're going to be practicing social distancing and stuff but you know how is the uh, whole scenario going to change for you guys well again we're looking at um uh we're entering a territory where we don't know um i i if it, this COVID thing is in our face today and it's only what over in mid-may um we're seeing italy suddenly opening up everywhere and look what they went through um and and again what you're hearing from the, from the italians and what's going on there you know there are people out there saying that it could it's here today could be gone tomorrow could disappear and then you're going to have the people saying there's waves coming back right now everybody's saying we're going to be social distancing forever and that could be the case as well we, we honestly don't know i do know that egypt is i, I don't believe they're going to open up for international flights until july at the earliest from everything that i've seen um and then in july you know it's going to be every airline's going to have its own rules for even getting here egypt is preparing they have a three-phase program now um and we're basically we haven't actually they haven't actually announced that we've entered the first phase but we haven't our restrictions are basically a 9 a.m a 9 p.m excuse me curfew uh, they're opening everything up except restaurants. Hotels will be at 50% capacity beginning June 1st. Um, and they will allow uh, internationals to come in. And from what I read, initially they're going to test foreigners. You'll get the rapid testing if you enter a hotel and everyone else is going, you know, in, and once you're in or whatever, then you, uh, you'll have the temperature testing everywhere like the rest of the world. And that's what they've sort of been doing here in the large areas. You get your temperature taken everywhere you go. Um, they are asking for social distancing and they are asking for mandatory um, face masks when you're outside, uh, especially as you enter businesses. And that's actually new. It hasn't been mandatory. It was just suggested. And now as we go through these phases, uh, once we're through uh, the first phase, which is two, after two weeks of not having I, I, I'm having our numbers go down, and our numbers have been relatively low in Egypt. Uh, Ildi and I are very happy about this. Um, <laughs> it's just incredible. So that that's very good. Whatever the government's doing is great. Um, and then after that, there's going to be 28 days of a loosening of some of those restrictions. Uh, restaurants and hotels, I think, will be open. I don't think they're going to open for gatherings until third phase. Um, and that's after that 28 days. So I don't think we're going to see international travel till probably any major international travel till September at the earliest. Probably fall is, is a hot season here. And by that time, things can change in a really positive way. We all, all the good vision, 
and things go well for the world. Um, and then I think by next uh, next fall, again, if there's not another wave, you know, we can't make those kind of predictions. Uh, mm -hmm. We're hoping that fall things will open up, people will trickle back. People, you know, we have a museum, a brand new museum that's going to open next year. We're so excited about that. Uh, we do have people signing on for tours. We have one in November, one in December, one in March. People are signing up. We've asked them not to send any full payments in, just deposits at this point, because um, it, it's just too costly to send money back and forth. Um, and we don't want anybody to buy flights, but we're very hopeful that things will really start moving um, by the end of this year, if not definitely by next uh, winter. And we hope we can get back into uh, Bring Egypt back to life because tourism is such a huge part of the business. The flow of, you know, it, it may be only 20% of the full of the business in Egypt, but it trickled the trickle down effect. It's a huge part of Egypt's uh, industry here. So people are suffering without the tourists. The government's doing its best to help them, but uh, would sure help if we could get back to normal and people could come back. And uh, Egypt works so hard. It, cleaning up sites and opening new pyramids and like I said this new museum's going to open they have worked so hard and uh, I know they're going to do everything they can to make the effects of this virus as limited as possible here because they were so excited about this museum opening there are things in this museum that nobody has ever seen they've come from places and basement museum basements and places all over Egypt and uh, I can't wait. I want to be there for the grand opening, but I don't think I'm going to be on the invitation list. But I'll be there shortly afterwards. But you can come to my house and we can watch it from the terrace. <laughs> yeah, I accept. I'm there. <laughs> Get the old telescope out and the binoculars. <laughs> Stand on that great deck that you have. <laughs> <laughs> well, ladies, thank you. Uh, thank you very much. I uh, really appreciate your time uh, in the morning for you and uh, everyone watching, uh, <laughs> you know, midnight in the mountains and, uh, you know, really appreciate it. And uh, please uh, share this video. And uh, before we close this off, uh, Patricia, if anybody wants to, uh, you know, look you up and where can they uh, find you? Oh, I'm everywhere. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. Put you on the spot there. <laughs> um, I have um, a Horace Rising website that's uh, horacerising.com. Um, and then I have uh, the Kemet School website, which is chematology.com. And then on Facebook, I have uh, Horace Rising. I have a group, and we have uh, Yosef Avian, and I have the Kemet School uh, group on Facebook and um, you can just uh, Google my name and I think you can find any of those things or the Kennet School or Horace Rising. And uh, I do travel, I do lectures and I can't wait to get moving again. I do actually move all over the world I was doing up until now. Um, but I probably focus on Egypt for, uh, for a while now. Okay, wonderful, wonderful. I'll uh, put those links into the uh, description of this video. So uh, in the future, you guys want to uh, go and check out uh, Patricia's websites. Uh, that would be fantastic. And uh, of course, buy her books, uh, probably learn something. Um, definitely, I'm going to and uh, hoping to learn something as well. 
And uh, with that being said, uh, you know, I really appreciate your time, Patricia and Nildi. Thank you very much. Um, you know, this was a fantastic conversation. And, uh, you know, like I said, you know, when they're scripted, uh, they're never good. Uh, I, I like them off the, you know, off the hook like this and just have a friendly conversation and look how much we learned. <laughs> so again, guys, yeah. Thank you very much. And, uh, you know, to all you guys watching, I uh, really appreciate it. And uh, just a quick heads up, our friends from uh, Forgotten Origin in Australia, they have a, uh, a webinar coming up on June 14th. Uh, I'll make a uh, post about it in our community and uh, give you guys a heads up. If you guys want to go check that one out, uh, I went and checked out their last one there about a week ago, week and a half ago. It was uh, just fantastic uh, eight-hour uh, event for the day so I suggest you guys check that out with that being said uh, much love to you guys all and uh, keep yourself safe out there uh, observe the social distancing uh, if you feel that's necessary and uh, beyond that I don't uh, really have much to say uh, my name is Omar and I was your host here at Watchers Talk for the past hour uh, please share this stream and uh, help us uh, raise us in the old uh, YouTube algorithm as you know we are heavily censored and shadow banned, so uh, your comments, likes, and shares uh, help a great deal. So much love to you all, and uh, we'll catch you guys next time. Bye. <laughs>